Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science. My word, we have a spiffing show for you today. Oh dear. Uh, yes, my name is Chris and uh, um, all seriousness, I suppose. Uh, I and today I will be talking about a recent announcement from the Australian government that they're going to set up a new space agency. Ooh. Yes, um, it's pretty exciting. Um, most people would say that it is quite long overdue. But what you may not realise is Australia has actually been in space before. Well, not the whole <laughs> continent. Not all of us. <laughs> Although of us. we are kind of in space all the time, really. Um, we've got to distinguish somehow. Le- leaving the Earth's atmosphere, put it yeah, that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we're going to look at the um, Australia's history in space. Cool. And, you know, what we've done and, oh, I suppose, you know, what it will mean for us to go back into space. Um, Manisha, what do you got going on? Um, hey, everyone. Um, so today I have this really cool story that's actually out of Finland. Um, it's about the owls in Finland and um, how climate change is changing their or how climate change could be driving a change in their plumage and how they are um, maybe even evolving as we watch. So you're saying the owls are not what they seem? The owls are not what they seem. All right, then. Well, on with our program. The recent 68th International Astronautical Congress cool. in Adelaide, the Australian government announced that it would be establishing an Australian space agency. Mm. Yes, um, it does seem a little bit overdue. Um, what, what's it going to be called? ASA? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know actually what it's going to be called. Um, but it's interesting because, like, out of the OECD countries, only two of them don't have a space program. Who's the other? Iceland. Ah. Even New Zealand has a space agency. Is that because if they lifted off rockets in Iceland, the whole place would melt? Quite possibly. I think yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, they have to do with it. The, um, the elves won't let them. Oh, yeah, yeah. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. Also, they're so close to Europe. Couldn't they just use the Europe Space Agency to lift off their stuff? Uh, yes. Um, well, possibly. Mm. I mean, well, actually, no, that's interesting because uh, we'll come and we'll get into the European Space, Ag- space Organization a bit later on in, in this story. Um, because there is a story, um, because what might be seen, I mean, it might seem surprising that a country like Australia does not have a, um, have a space program because, you know, we do would seem to be fairly big. We have good geography for it. Yeah, but, there's a lot of room. There must be one kicking around out there somewhere. Yeah. But the thing is, we did used to have a space program. We just shut it down. So it all began um, in all the 40s. I think it was first established, but I think the first launches took place in the in the 50s. Uh, and it was, no surprise, a joint operation with the British who loved to go and blow things up in the Australian desert on well, various people's traditional lands. Well, yeah, I guess. I mean, there, there, there was various people's traditional lands in Britain as well, but there was yep. a lot more people around in yep. Britain that they might have disturbed. And um, the place where this took place, actually, uh, probably no surprise, probably heard of it, is Woomera in South Australia. Um, so the first launches that they did in the in the 1950s, they were suborbital rocket launches. So they called them sounding rockets, where they just basically fire a rocket up into the upper atmosphere, um, which seems like 
you're wondering what's the point. So, um, so they're they're almost like ballistic rockets, though. Yeah, they are. They right. are kind of. But you can still like, they still go quite high enough. You can have send a lot of, lot of instruments up. You can do measurements of the upper atmosphere, okay. of radiation, this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, you can, you know, make meteorological observations, this kind of stuff. So, it's did, not, did they make people think there was you know unidentified flying objects? Um, I don't know. Quite possibly they did. Well, that's interesting, I guess, because people now a lot of people send stuff up into high altitudes with balloons. Mm. Our balloon technology is. Proved enough, I guess, that we can send a lot of balloons up as well. But yeah, at the time it was these these rockets was was the thing, um, and yeah, and this was kind of as I said a sort of a collaboration um, first uh, with the British, then with NASA. They came along. We got involved with NASA as well. Um, a lot of a lot of we helped a lot with the tracking of their satellites and things, uh, things that we're still doing today. So the um, I read the other day that Australia is the only has the only tracking station that's still tracking Voyager two. I think does it? Yeah, everyone else is, just doesn't bother looking at okay. Voyager two anymore. But we've got one. Well, we're pretty that points at Voyager two and says, "Hey, you're still there." We don't have much else going on. No, um, but no. I mean, actually, I have visited the um, the deep space track um, deep space tracking station near Canberra, um, Tidbinbilla, I think it is near Canberra. Yeah, um, and yeah, it's pretty cool. They have big dishes. They point to the various spacecraft that are out there. Um, yeah, we helped watch Cassini's last last moments as well. Um, and of course, famously, um, it wasn't always the the dishes were there at uh, Canberra. They used to be at parks where they watched the the landing on the the moon landing, as seen in the movie The Dish. But yeah, so a lot of this was activity helping these other countries do their stuff. But we actually did launch our own satellite in 1967. It was the just the uh, one. I, as far as I can figure out, it's just the one that we've actually launched. Must um, be pretty old. Is it still up there? No, no. Oh. It was the WRE Sat. Um, it was actually, it wasn't our rocket. The satellite was ours, but the, it used an American rocket. Um, and the WRE stood for Weapons Research Establishment Satellite. Um, so it was basically a small satellite just to, I guess, measure the capability. It had some instruments on there. Um, and it launched in 1967, 29th of November. And Australia became the fourth country in the world to launch its own satellite from its own territory. Hmm. Which is, so, you know, we might seem like a lagging behind, but in a way we were one of the leaders then. So, Way out in front of the pack. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was a, it was an American rocket that, that sent it up. Um, it came back, re-entered the Atlantic Ocean uh, west of Ireland on the 10th of January 1968. So, it, you know, it was, it was up there for a bit. Lucky, because you wouldn't want to enter the Atlantic Ocean east of Ireland. Because no. There isn't, there isn't. <laughs> you'd you'd yeah. hit a lot of people if you yeah. did that. So it um, it completed 642 orbits. Um, 73 of those orbits, it actually able, was able to transmit useful data. So it did some stuff. Um, and yeah, it was basically just, uh, me- again, mostly just measuring the upper atmosphere um, and trialling the technology, I guess, and demonstrating our capability. But so, yeah, that was 1967 and... There wasn't really much after that. Um, I tried to find a list of all the Australian satellites. Um, apart from WRESAT, there was another one that was an, called Oscar 5, also known as Australis, I think was um, launched by an American rocket in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was actually kind of an amateur construction that they, they managed to get some space on a rocket to, to be sent up. Um, then in the 1980s, there were the AUSSAT satellites, which are communications satellites. 
Um, I remember I was looking at this and I, and I saw what they looked like and I remember that I had a little paper model of one that I got out of some sort of magazine or something back in the back in the eighties, some sort of promotional thing. And yeah, it looked very familiar. Were they were they financed by the government or were they privately funded, the Ozsat? Um, they were, I believe they were, I believe they were a government funded ones. Yeah. Mm. Cause we did actually have a, a space agency at that point, a space program into a certain extent. Um, so yeah, look, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a complicated thing, I suppose. Um, so we had, we had obviously these first steps into space, but the, um, the cost of having a full space program was always kind of seen quite high. Uh, even though we had a lot of opportunities like the European space organization, send us plenty of invitations to to join them and you know we did actually launch some uh european rockets from australia as well some italian ones and this sort of thing um and and yeah and so this kind of carried on a little bit into into the 1980s i think actually was um the australian space office was set up in the 1980s when they tried to get a, a bit more effort to build these other satellites like the odsat satellites that they sent up then but um that's pretty much all it did and the sort of funding kept being wound back and eventually it was terminated in 1996 the whole thing so yeah it was a pretty kind of sad thing again because it just seemed expensive and didn't seem to be worthwhile so what we tend to do is um well we do have a few other australian owned one that's been launched since then um but we mostly just use other country satellites for our purposes which kind of puts us at the mercy of all kinds of different countries well and a lot of a lot of well a lot of the communications that satellites used to be used for has been replaced by fiber optic cables. So we don't even, you know, we used to get TV broadcast by satellite and things like that, which we don't really do anymore. Oh, no, we still do, though, in some areas. Like, obviously, Australia being such a large country, there are remote areas where we do use it. Like, there are um, satellites called Skymasters that are used for the, for the NBN, and right. they're relatively new ones. And, of course, people complain about the expense of those. But the thing is that space is becoming more and more important. We are we are still using the communication a lot more, I guess, um, observation, um, a lot more sort of Earth observation done from satellites, a lot more kind of data and things that you can use. You know, we're much more a data-based society. Um, well, certainly like GPS and things like that, people use that pretty much on a daily yeah, basis. Yeah. So one of the things I've been talking about with this launch of the Australian Space Agency is that there's the um the international space industry is worth about 420 billion dollars at the moment and so kind of it's like it's a, it's a big industry and you know this is a way of Australia trying to be part of that industry as well so it doesn't necessarily mean launching our own satellites ourselves from our own rockets um it might just be building our own satellites and um and putting them up there but the technology improved of course the satellites have got a lot smaller instead of being like a big car sized thing um, now the big uh, fashion is things called CubeSats, which are about 10 centimetres uh, on each side. So they're pretty small, and you can pack a lot into that, into that little cube. Um, so I guess the um, you know, advances in other computer technology and stuff mean that you don't have to build gigantic satellites to do the yeah. job anymore. Yeah, and there are a lot of people around Australia who are working on these various CubeSats. So it's more a matter of, I guess, coordinating that activity um, trying to have some sort of centralising of the technology involved in it so that everyone's not just doing the same thing and wasting a lot of money doing the same thing over and over again. Funding some of the work, I think, at the federal government level. It doesn't all have to be um, government funded. But also even just having the ability to be part of the space community, which we're not really at the moment. We're just kind of an outlier, refusing to be, get involved. So it's good for us to be at least at the table. 
Um, yeah, so it's, look, it's interesting. We'll see what it all means. Um, you know, if you look at all the announcements, there's a lot of jargon, there are a lot of government things, but it's all increasing our capability and jobs and growth and this kind of stuff. And what, what that actually means is, is, you know, in a practical sense, is not clear. I mean, we're not going to be putting people on the moon or anything like that. There won't be like an Australian base on the moon. But yeah, space is an important part of, of the modern world. We are still in the space age. And yeah, Australia needs to be part of it. Nice. Satellites, sad, sad satellites. Invisible to the chains of orbit that I will be your burning satellite. Satellite, sad, sad, satellite Spinning with the window of the night I went away, went, went, went away and Just to see, to see what you say Above the chains of orbit, I would be on final satellite. All the children waiting to be born, still in the mire. Streets are full, they're full of hungry hearts Waiting for the moment to be a star Invisible the chains of orbit Satellites by Yellingbow, and you are on the Community Radio Network. Hi, everyone. This is Manisha, and you're listening to Lost in Science. So, um, survival of the fittest. We all know about this concept, yes? Yeah. Yeah. There's a trait, and it makes you 
or an individual uh, more capable or able to survive in a certain time point, you can breed, pass on your genes, and fantastic, the population has your genes. If you don't have a, if the, you don't have these good genes or you can't get a mate, you don't breed and you don't pass on your genes, and so the that gene will probably get filtered out of a population. Yeah. Or at least reducing frequency. Reducing frequency, yeah. yeah. Be less and less common. Um, and that's how populations evolve. And if we talk about this on a small time step, so if we think about what we think of with evolution, that's sort of known as macroevolution, like a big timescale evolution, the whole like fish to human evolution thing, bacteria to human thing. Or even like, you know, one species changing into a different species. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but microevolution is um, the, sa- the same concept, just on a smaller time scale. So when we're looking at changes within a population over mm-hmm. some generation times. So um, you can actually watch uh, different species um, adapt to a, to a challenge in their environment. I guess a famous example is those, is those moths in in the UK. In the that, UK during the industrial era. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The ones that were they were what they were white moths that used to be on white trees, and then when the soot made the bark black, then the moths started getting dark colours. Yeah. So the the moths themselves weren't actually changing in colour because the the, uh, the the trees were darker, but the lighter moths, in contrast to the darker trees, were easier to be picked off, mm. and so there were fewer of those individuals passing along their genes because they were getting eaten probably maybe before they were able to, but then before they were able to mate and pass on their genes. But then maybe the the darker moths were surviving better and so they had a, they had more of a chance to have more. Reproduce, yeah. But then the, the light genes would still be there. So when pollution is improved, um, then presumably the white ones would come back. Yeah, if if the if the uh, if the lighter color is then all of a sudden favored for whatever yeah. reason, yeah, if the if yeah if pollution improves and all of that, so these sorts of um, these sorts of changes happen over time quite often, and it's actually quite interesting to um, evaluate the changes because we no- normally only see them after they've happened, or we only start to notice it after the fact, and when all of a sudden, oh, there's no more white moths. Why could this possibly be happening? Um, so my story is actually about uh, a research group out of Finland that's actually watching this sort of a change happen in a population of tawny owls just um, outside of Helsinki. So tawny owls, they're these, they're sort of smaller owls, they're medium sized according to owl ranges, they're about 500 grams. And they occur throughout um, temperate forests, mostly in Europe and in Asia. And they're very widespread and they're very abundant. So they're they're not of any sort of. Um, uh, they're not endangered or anything. No, exactly. Like that. Yeah, they're no. not of any sort of concern in this way. So there are these massive, massive populations around. But something that's interesting is that n- now with um, climate change, over the last few years, well, over the last maybe twenty to fifty years, more and more researchers have been noticing changes in uh, the population demographics. So like later. Um, later reproduction times and shorter lifespans and things like that. So there seems to be some sort of a stress on the on these um, populations, even though it hasn't come out or these, these st- sorts of stresses aren't um, putting the population at risk just yet. Um, but one, So the uh, researcher, researchers out of Finland, what they were looking at 
was the difference between two two types of morphs in the same population. So these owls actually have a gray morph and a brown morph, and they both exist. Um, so what do you mean by a morph? Is it just a different plumage? Like so, their coloration is a bit different. So one um, one type of tawny owl in this population tends to be a bit more gray, while the other type tends to be more brown. And so... But they but they still interbreed with each other? Yeah. Right. Yep. So they're still the same species. It's just a different sort of... Um, yeah, it's just a different display okay. of, of their gene. So it's a different phenotype for the same genotype. So this study was carried out by Patrick Carroll and his colleagues at the University of Helsinki. And what they did was... They actually analyzed a really uh, massive data set. They had 28 years of data on 471 owls. And they had um, all sorts of data from genetic data um, to uh, habitat data and the, uh, like, which... So when you're working with birds, you can ring birds so that you can identify them later. So you can give basically give them a band um, with an identification number. So this long-standing data set can allow for you to say which birds are mating with one another. So tawny owls are monogamous, so you can follow breeding pairs. You can see who's had um, which which chicks and which children and who's what which one's grandparent and uncle and all of these things. And that allows you to really tell a lot about a population. It allows you to see um, how the genetics um, are playing out, how, how, the, um, how the genes are passing down throughout the population. And, oh, with this massive data set, not only were they able to look at how the generations are playing out, but they were able to um, also make correlations with how um, the environment was changing over the past 28 years. And so from their study, they found a few um, really interesting things about these morphs and about the tawny owls. First, um, the bigger fi- or the biggest finding, which I sort of glossed over, was that um, this uh, the the morph coloration isn't just phenotypic plasticity. Whoa, whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa! So phenotypic plasticity is basically when you have a gene that can be expressed in a different way given your circumstance. So like if you ha- so we ha- all have genes, genes are like the the coding to how um, we look and our pro- like the, the things that happen in our body, the way that we look. So with phenotypic plasticity, I think the easiest way to think about it is with plants. So if you have two identical p- plants and you grow one in poor nutrient soil and another in pretty rich nutrient soil, Mm -hmm. it is likely that their root structure or their leaf characteristics will will be different because of the fact that they're in different environmental situations. So it's the same it's the same plant, but they just look different. So the the uh, gene has the ability or the plants the genes in the plant have the ability to adapt according to the circumstance that they're in. And so in, in the situation in Finland with the tawny owl, they were able to show that the, um, the difference between the, the brown and the gray isn't just a phenotypic plasticity. So there isn't some sort of an environmental um, condition that is, is promoting that uh, the owls have a, a, a certain type of plumage. Does that make sense? So the owls aren't just spontaneously turning gray because, or brown because... Or something has laid. They're eating a different food. Yeah, exactly. Right. So they're they're um, 
their expression isn't the expression of this color isn't based on their environment. It's not okay. so. It is it, they. The researchers were able to demonstrate that it is a genetic thing. Okay. There's an allele controlling the color of their plumage. Yeah, and then over the course of the study, uh, Patrick Carroll and his colleagues also found that. The, this plumage coloration was shifting. So when they first started collecting their data back in the 80s, um, their, their population was 12% brown morphs and 88% gray morphs. And now, it was, um, up until recently, up until 2000, 2010, uh, they, the population is now more even. So there's 42% brown and 58% gray. And they found that the um, the change in the morphs because it's not a phenotype type thing it's not it's not just another expression it is a genetic thing so it means that the brown the brown owls are surviving better than the gray owls and they were able to track this according or they were able to correlate this and, and analyze it according to the survival of owls over the winter and compare it to how um, compared to the temperatures and the average level of snowfall in Finland over these winters. And um, they noticed that, so back when, so lately Finland's been having more mild or milder and less snowy winters. And so back when they were, the winters were more snowy, the gray, the gray owls were probably favored because they could hide better over winter from So, so from the predators. gray gene was more selected it, in the... Exactly. Okay. Exactly, and they were able to blend into their surroundings. So this is like the moth example. So yep. the the gray owls were better suited for that surrounding. But now, because there's less snow, the brown owls um, are actually not as visible, and the brown owls are actually better at um, exploiting food resources. And so it's not that the gray owls are all of a sudden more visible and are being taken more. It's just that the brown owls are starting to blend in more and because they're also better hunters and better at exploiting resources their populations have been have been growing over the past little while so the gray the gray owls have lost their advantage exactly. from the from the snowy winters and now the brown owls are taking over because they're better at hunting and stuff yeah how now brown owl oh jeez as the saying goes the old saying the old saying um and yeah so now because of climate change we're seeing this shift in morphologies and the two, um, the two morphs, uh, or we're seeing this shift in these morphologies between the two morphs, and the trend will probably continue if, if we're not expecting um, a complete reversal of climate change anytime soon. And so if we can continue to get milder um, winters in Finland, the uh, brown owls will continue to be favored in this situation. So yeah, so it's, it's really cool. It's a good example of how of watching evolution happen. But for a bad reason. For a bad reason, yeah, but mm. evolution happens in in um, the face of challenges, I suppose. <laughs> okay, and that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is, of course, recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-I-N-S-C-I at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. 
or you can find us on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science One, or you can look up our podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you do, please, if you get the chance to give us a good rating and a review, uh, help other people find our podcast, or you can find us uh, on your radio station the same time next week. And once again, Stu, Manisha, Claire, and Chris will get Lost, Lost in Science. science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.